Chapter 12, Part 2 of 2 of Herndon's Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Don Bracci. Herndon's Lincoln by William H. Herndon and Jesse William Wake. Section 22. During this campaign, Lincoln was nominated and elected to the legislature. This was done in the face of his unwillingness and over his protest. On the ticket with him was Judge Logan. Both were elected by a majority of about 600 votes. Lincoln, being ambitious to reach the United States Senate, and warmly encouraged in his aspirations by his wife, resigned his seat in the legislature in order that he might the more easily be elected to succeed his old rival James Shields, who was then one of the senators from Illinois. His canvass for that exalted office was marked by his characteristic activity and vigilance. During the anxious moments that intervened between the general election and the assembling of the legislature, he slept, like Napoleon, with one eye open. While attending court at Clinton on the 11th of November, a few days before the election, he wrote to a party friend in the town of Paris, I have a suspicious that a Whig has been elected to the legislature from Edgar. If this is not so, why then, nix cumarus, nix cumarus. But if it is so, then could you not make a mark with him for me for U.S. Senator? I really have some chance. Please write me at Springfield giving me the names, post offices, and political positions of your representatives and senator, whoever they may be. Let this be confidential. That man who thinks Lincoln calmly sat down and gathered his robes about him, waiting for the people to call him, has a very erroneous knowledge of Lincoln. He was always calculating and always planning ahead. His ambition was a little engine that knew no rest. The vicissitudes of a political campaign brought into play all his tact and management, and developed to its fullest extent his latent industry. In common with other politicians, he never overlooked a newspaper man who had it in his power to say a good or bad thing of him. The press of that day was not so powerful an institution as now. But ambitious politicians courted the favor of the newspaper man with as much zeal as the same class of men have done in later days. I remember a letter Lincoln once wrote to the editor of an obscure little country newspaper in southern Illinois, in which he warms up to him in the following style. Friend Harding, I have been reading your paper for three or four years, and have paid you nothing for it. He then encloses ten dollars and admonishes the editor with innocent complacency. Put it into your pocket, saying nothing further about it. Very soon thereafter, he prepared an article on political matters and sent it to the rural journalist, requesting its publication in the editorial column of his valued paper. But the latter, having followed Lincoln's directions and stowed the ten dollars away in his pocket, and alive to the importance of his journal's influence, declined. Because, he said, I long ago made it a rule to publish nothing as editorial matter not written by himself. Lincoln read the editor's answer to me. Although the laugh was on Lincoln, he enjoyed the joke heartily. That editor, he said, had a rather lofty but proper conception of true journalism. Meanwhile, the legislature had convened, and the senatorial question came on for solution. The history of this contest is generally understood, and the world has repeatedly been told how Lincoln was led to expect the place and would have won but for the apostasy of his five anti-Nebraska men of Democratic antecedents who clung to and finally forced the election of Lyman Trumbull. 
The student of history in after years will be taught to revere the name of Lincoln for his exceeding magnanimity in including his friends to abandon him at the critical period and save Trumbull while he himself disappeared beneath the waves of defeat. The frustration of Lincoln's ambition had a marked effect on his political views. It was plain to him now that the irresistible conflict was not far ahead. With the strengthening of his faith in a just cause so long held in abeyance, he became more defiant each day but in the very nature of things he dared not be as bold and outspoken as I. With him every word and sentence had to be weighed and its effects calculated before being uttered, but with me that operation had to be reversed if done at all. An incident that occurred about this time will show how his views were broadening. Sometime after the election of Trumbull, a young Negro, the son of a colored woman in Springfield known as Polly, went from his home in St. Louis, and there hired a hand on a lower Mississippi boat, for what special service I do not recollect, arriving in New Orleans without what were known as free papers. Though born free, he was subjected to the tyranny of the Black Code, all the more stringent because of the recent utterances of the abolitionists in the North, and was kept in prison until his boat had left. Then, as no one was especially interested in him, he was forgotten. After a certain length of time established by law, he would inevitably have been sold into slavery to defray prison expenses had not Lincoln and I interposed our aid. The mother came to us with the story of the wrong done to her son and induced us to interfere in her behalf. We went first to see the governor of Illinois, who, after patient and thorough examination of the law, responded that he had no right or power to interfere. Recourse was then had to the governor of Louisiana, who responded in like manner. We were sorely perplexed. A second interview with the governor of Illinois, resulting in nothing favorable, Lincoln rose from his chair, hat in hand, and exclaimed with some emphasis, By God, governor, I'll make the ground in this country too hot for the foot of a slave, whether you have the legal power to secure the release of this boy or not. Having exhausted all legal means to recover the Negro, we drew up a subscription list, which I circulated, collecting funds enough to purchase the young man's liberty. The money we sent to Colonel A. P. Fields, a friend of ours in New Orleans, who applied it as directed, and it restored the prisoner to his overjoyed mother. The political history of the country, commencing in 1854 and continuing until the outbreak of the rebellion, furnishes the student a constant succession of stirring and sometimes bloody scenes. No sooner had Lincoln emerged from the senatorial contest in February 1855 and absorbed himself in the law than the outrages on the border of Missouri and Kansas began to arrest public attention. The stories of raids, election frauds, murders, and other crimes were moving eastward with marked rapidity. These outbursts of frontier lawlessness, led and sanctioned by the avowed pro-slavery element, were not only stirring up the abolitionists to fever heat, but touching the hearts of humanity in general. In Illinois, an association was formed to aid the cause of free soil men in Kansas. In the meetings of these bands of abolitionists, of course, took the most prominent part. At Springfield, we were energetic, vigilant, almost revolutionary. We recommended the employment of any means, however desperate, to promote and defend the cause of freedom. At one of these meetings, Lincoln was called on for a speech. He responded to the request, counseling moderation and less bitterness in dealing with the situation before us. We were belligerent in tone and clearly out of patience with the government. Lincoln opposed the notion of coercive measures with the possibility of resulting bloodshed, advising us to eschew resort to the bullet. You can better succeed, he declared, with the ballot. 
you can peaceably then redeem the government and preserve the liberties of mankind through your votes and voice and moral influence. Let there be peace. Revolutionize through the ballot box and restore the government once more to the affections and hearts of men by making it express, as it was intended to do, the highest spirit of justice and liberty. Your attempt, if there be such, to resist the laws of Kansas by force is criminal and wicked, and all your feeble attempts will be follies and end in bringing sorrow on your heads and ruin the cause you would freely die to preserve. These judicious words of counsel, while they reduce somewhat our ardor and our desperation, only place before us in their real colors and grave features of the situation. We raised a neat sum of money, Lincoln showing his sincerity by joining in the subscription, and forwarded it to our friends in Kansas. The Whig Party, having accomplished its mission in the political world, was now on the eve of the great breakup. Lincoln realized this, and though proverbially slow in his movement, prepared to find a firm footing when the great rush of waters should come and the maddening freshet sweep former landmarks out of sight. Of the strongest significance in this connection is a letter written by him at this juncture to an old friend in Kentucky who called to his attention their differences on views on the wrong of slavery. Speaking of his observation of the treatment of the slaves, he says, I confess, I hate to see the poor creatures hunted down and caught and carried back to their unrequited toils, but I bite my lips and keep quiet. In 1841, you and I had rather a tedious low-water trip on a steamboat from Louisville to St. Louis. You may remember as well as I do that from Louisville to the mouth of the Ohio, there were on board ten or a dozen slaves shackled together with irons. That sight was a continued torment to me, and I see something like it every time I touch the Ohio or any slave border. It is not fair for you to assume that I have no interest in such a thing which has, and continually exercises, the power of making me miserable. You ought rather to appreciate how much the great body of the northern people do crucify their feelings in order to maintain their loyalty to the Constitution and the Union. I do oppose the extension of slavery because my judgment and feeling so prompt me, and I am under no obligation to the contrary. If for this you and I must differ, differ we must. Finding himself drifting about with the disorganized elements that floated together after the angry political waters had subsided, it became apparent to Lincoln that if he expected to figure as a leader, he must take a stand himself. Mere hatred of slavery and opposition to the injustice of the Kansas-Nebraska legislation were not all that were required of him. He must be a Democrat, know-nothing, abolitionist, or Republican, or forever float about in the great political sea without compass, rudder, or sail. At length he declared himself, Believing the times were ripe for more advanced movements, in the spring of 1856, I drew up a paper for the Friends of Freedom to sign, calling a county convention in Springfield to select delegates for the forthcoming Republican State Convention in Bloomington. The paper was freely circulated and generously signed. Lincoln was absent at the time, and, believing I knew what his feeling and judgment on the vital questions of the hour were, I took the liberty to sign his name to the call. The whole was then published in the Springfield Journal. No sooner had it appeared than John T. Stewart, who with others was endeavoring to retard Lincoln in his advance movements, rushed into the office and excitedly asked if Lincoln had signed the abolition call in the journal. I answered in the negative, adding that I had signed his name myself. To the question, did Lincoln authorize you to sign it, I returned an emphatic no. 
then exclaimed the startled and indignant Stuart, You have ruined him. But I was by no means alarmed at what others deemed inconsiderate and hasty action. I thought I understood Lincoln thoroughly, but in order to vindicate myself, if assailed, I immediately sat down after Stuart had rushed out of the office and wrote Lincoln, who was then in Tazewell County attending court, a brief account of what I had done and how much stir it was creating in the ranks of his conservative friends. If he approved or disapproved my course, I asked him to write or telegraph me at once. In a brief time came his answer. All right, go ahead. We'll meet you, radicals and all. Stuart subsided, and the conservative spirits who hovered around Springfield no longer held control of the political fortunes of Abraham Lincoln. The Republican Party came into existence in Illinois as a party at Bloomington, May 29, 1856. The state convention of all opponents of anti-Nebraska legislation, referred to in a foregoing paragraph, had been set for that day. Judd, Yates, Trumbull, Sweat, and Davis were there. So also was Lovejoy, who, like Otis of colonial fame, was a flame of fire. The firm of Lincoln and Herndon was represented by both members in person. The gallant William H. Bissell, who had ridden at the head of the 2nd Illinois Regiment at the Battle of Buena Vista in the Mexican War, was nominated as governor. The convention adopted a platform ringing with strong anti-Nebraska sentiments and then and there gave the Republican Party its official christening. The business of the convention being over, Mr. Lincoln, in response to repeated calls, came forward and delivered a speech of such earnestness and power that no one who heard it will ever forget the effect it produced. In referring to his speech some years ago, I used the following rather graphic language. I have heard or read all of Mr. Lincoln's great speeches, and I give it as my opinion that the Bloomington speech was the grand effort of his life. Heretofore, he had simply argued the slavery question on grounds of policy, the statement's grounds, never reaching the question of the radical and the eternal right. Now he was newly baptized and freshly born. He had the fervor of a new convert. The smothered flame broke out. Enthusiasm unusual to him blazed up. His eyes were aglow with an inspiration. He felt justice. His heart was alive to the right. His sympathies, remarkably deep for him, burst forth, and he stood before the throne of the eternal right. His speech was full of fire and energy and force. It was logic. It was pathos. It was enthusiasm. It was justice, equity, truth, and right, set ablaze by the divine fires of a soul maddened by the wrong. It was hard, heavy, knotty, gnarly, backed with wrath. I attempted for about fifteen minutes, as was usual with me then, to take notes, but at the end of that time I threw pen and paper away and lived only in the inspiration of the hour. If Mr. Lincoln was six feet four inches high usually, at Bloomington that day he was seven feet and inspired at that. From that day to the day of his death he stood firm in the right. He felt his great cross had his great idea, nursed it, kept it, taught it to others, and his fidelity bore witness of it to his death, and finally sealed it with his precious blood. The foregoing paragraph, used by me in a lecture in 1866, may to the average reader seem somewhat vivid in description. Besides inclining to extravagance and imagery, yet although more than twenty years have passed since it was written, I have never seen the need of altering a single sentence. I still adhere to the substantial truthfulness of the scene as described. Unfortunately, Lincoln's speech was never written out, nor printed, and we were obliged to depend for its reproduction upon personal recollection.
the bloomington convention and the part lincoln took in it met no such hearty response in springfield as we had hoped would follow it fell flat and in lincoln's case drove from him many persons who had heretofore been his warm political friends a few days after our return we announced a meeting at the courthouse to ratify the action of the bloomington convention after the usual efforts to draw a crowd however only three persons had temerity enough to attend they were lincoln the writer and a courageous man named john payne lincoln in answer to the deafening calls for a speech responded that the meeting was larger than he knew it would be and that while he knew that he himself and his partner would attend he was not sure anyone else would and yet another man had been found brave enough to come out while all seems dead he exhorted the age itself is not it liveth as sure as our maker liveth under all this seeming want of life and motion the world does not move nevertheless be hopeful and now let us adjourn and appeal to the people not only in springfield but everywhere else the founders of the republican party the apostles of freedom went out to battle for the righteousness of their cause lincoln having as usual been named as one of the presidential electors canvassed the state making in all about fifty speeches he was in demand everywhere i have before me a package of letters addressed to him inviting him to speak at almost every county seat in the state yates wanted him to go to one section of the state washburn to another and trumbull still another while every crossroads politician and legislative aspirant wanted him down in our country where we need your help joshua r giddings wrote him words of encouragement you may start said the valiant old abolitionist in a letter from peoria on the one great issue of restoring kansas and nebraska to freedom or rather of restoring the missouri compromise and in this state no power on earth can withstand you on that issue the demand for lincoln was not confined to his own state indiana sent for him wisconsin also while norman b judd and ebenezer peck who were stumping iowa sent for him to come there a town committee invited him to come during our equestrian fair on the ninth tenth and eleventh evidently anticipating a three-day siege an enthusiastic officer in a neighboring town urges him come to our place because in you do our people place more confidence than in any other man men who do not read want the story told as you only can tell it others may make fine speeches but it would not be lincoln said so in his speech a jubilant friend in chicago writes push on the column of freedom give the buck africans plenty to do in egypt the hour of our redemption draweth nigh we are coming to springfield with twenty thousand majority a postmaster acting under the courage of his convictions implores him to visit his neighborhood the democrats here he insists are dyed in the wool thunder and lightning would not change their political complexion i am postmaster here he adds confidently for which reason i must ask you to keep this private for if old frank president pierce were to hear of my support for fremont i would get my walking papers sure enough a settlement of germans in southern indiana asked to hear him and the president of a college in an invitation to address the students under his charge characterizes him as one providentially raised up for a time like this and even should defeat come in the contest it would be some consolation to remember we had hector for a leader and thus it was everywhere lincoln's importance in the conduct of the campaign was apparent to all and his canvass was characterized by his usual vigor and effectiveness he was especially noted for his attempt to break down the strength of fillmore who was nominated as a third-party candidate and was expected to divide the republican vote 
He tried to wean away Phil Moore's adherents by an adroit and ingenious letter sent to those suspected of the latter's support and marked confidential, in which he strove to show that in clinging to their candidate they were really aiding the election of Buchanan. But the effort proved unavailing, for in spite of all his arguments and appeals, a large number of the Phil Moore men clung tenaciously to their leader, resulting in Buchanan's election. The vote in Illinois stood, Buchanan, 105,344, Fremont, 96,180, and Fillmore, 37,451. At the same time, Bissell was elected governor by a majority of 4,729 over W.A. Richardson, Democrat. After the heat and burden of the day, Lincoln returned home, bearing with him more and greater laurels than ever. The signs of the times indicated, and the result of the canvas demonstrated, that he and he alone was powerful enough to meet the redoubtable little giant in a greater conflict yet to follow. End of section 22. Recording by Don Bracci, Chicago, Illinois, www.voicedon.com.